Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi. About 100 days into the Biden presidency, the new administration is rethinking foreign policy on a number of fronts. That includes America's relationship with Iran after four years of the Trump presidency. Today, we have assistant editor Regina Munch speaking with John Gazvinian, author of a new book on America and Iran. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Regina. It's good to have you here. Hi, Dominic. So let's hear about your conversation. John Gazvinian is a journalist and the executive director of the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Gazvinian and I talked about his new book about the history of the relationship between the U.S. and Iran. And in many Americans' minds, that begins with the 1979 hostage crisis. But Gazvinian takes us all the way back to 1720, when American colonists were obsessed with goings-on in Persia. And for the majority of the time since, Americans and Iranians viewed each other with a lot of respect and admiration. And one of the guiding questions of Gazvinian's book is really, given that, how did things go so wrong with our relationship with Iran? Okay, I think this is a very timely podcast, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Regina. Thanks, Dominic. Accounts of the history of American-Iranian relations often start with the Iranian hostage crisis in 1979. Where does your account start? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's, I think, where most popular memory in the United States begins. I think, generally speaking, if you're more favorable to the United States and more critical of Iran, uh, you tend to start in 1979 with that sort of original sin, if you will, the sort of takeover of the uh, U.S. embassy in Tehran by radicalized students in the midst of the Iranian revolution. If you're more critical of U.S. foreign policy and more likely to be more favorable to Iran, you tend to begin in 1953. That's where things began when the CIA overthrew a very popular prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. I actually think the problem with all of this is that it's focusing too much on blame and victimhood. And that's not a good use of history to sit around trying to figure out who started it, you know, who's at fault, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. I was trying to get us away from all of that, which is why I wrote the book. So I actually start in the 1720s with the very first newspaper accounts of Persia, as it was known then, in colonial American newspapers in Boston and Philadelphia. And I really, what I'm trying to explore is the prehistory, the preconceived notions that both societies had of each other before they even came into contact with each other. Can you tell me about some of the first encounters between Persians and Americans? The way that you write it in your book, it almost sounds like a comedy of errors and misunderstandings in some ways. I think that's a fair way to describe it. It is a history that is filled with missed opportunities, misunderstandings, and bad timing in many cases. Sometimes, yeah, comedy or tragedy, really, of errors. To answer your question, the first actual contact between Iranians and Americans, it's impossible to really know. It's probably rum traders in the early early 19th century. But the first really documented contact, actually, is a guy by the name of Joel Roberts Poinsett, who is the guy that we named the Poinsettia flower uh, after. He is the, a South Carolina gentleman who traveled through Russia and then down into Baku and the area around the Caspian, which at the time was part of Iran. Uh, it's not anymore. Uh, he didn't make it all the way to, to Iran. He was the one-off. It wasn't part of a larger sustained interaction, but he uh, he met with villagers in this small town named Kupa, and he writes about how confused they were by even the existence of America. They had heard of the Tsar, they had heard of but they had heard, heard of Napoleon, they had heard of France and Great Britain and Russia, but they believed when it came to the new world, they believed in it with the sort of scanty faith of someone listening to an Arabian tale. It was a fantasy land. And they referred to it as the new world, the Yengi Donya. The other thing I love about that anecdote is they kept asking him what the, what, you know, they kept saying, who is your king? But tell us about your, who's your king? And he kept, 
the U.S. had just had a revolution. And he was trying to explain constitutional government and republicanism. But that didn't make a lot of sense to most people anywhere in the world. This is 1805, okay? So, you know, it was an unusual form of government. Uh, so he said he eventually gave up. And, and he says, there's this guy in the, sitting in the corner who was writing down everything he said. And he said, somewhere in the annals of, of this small town, the, the name of Thomas Jefferson is inscribed as the Shah of America. <laughs> so that was the first actual contact that we know about. I also liked the story you told about the two ambassadors who first met when the American ambassador went to Iran and the Persian ambassador went to the United States, just the assumptions that they had about each other and the sort of rude awakenings that came about because of that. Yeah, that's also, it's an amazing story. The first U.S. ambassador, we used the term minister back then. We would today call them ambassadors. The first U.S. minister to Iran was a man by the name of Samuel Benjamin, uh, who went over in 1883. And yeah, it's an incredible story. It took him two months to get over there. He then traveled by steamboat across the Black Sea, uh, was received at the port in the north. And as he made his way down towards Tehran, he was escorted by a thousand liveried horsemen for a hundred miles into his entry, his grand ceremonial entry into Tehran, you know, met with and firing off with something to about 20 or so ceremonial cannon in the honor of the United States. The news of his arrival took up three out of the four pages of the official newspaper of the time. It was a real moment of history for uh, the Iranians. By contrast, the first Iranian ambassador who went over there, a guy by the name of uh, Haj Hossein Ghali Khan and Nuri, was, went in uh, 1888 and was received at the 21st Street Pier in Manhattan by an official from the State Department who helped him check into a hotel for the night. Some listeners might be surprised to learn that over and over, Iran looked to the United States to help it combat the more forceful European colonial powers. How did the United States get involved in Iran's struggles in the first half of the 20th century? Yeah, this is what's really incredible, and that surprised even me. Let me back up a little bit, because most American historians who study this subject, they begin at some time in the 1940s, because before that, the U.S. is a really isolationist power and doesn't get have any kind of interest in the remote parts of the world, like Iran, where it has no special interest. But I think there's actually a real problem with approaching history this way. There's this idea that the history of these two countries, only the bilateral relations of you know, only becomes important when the U.S. becomes interested. The thing is, Iran was actually very interested for uh, almost a century before that. Starting in the 1850s, every single Iranian government really wanted to get the U.S. more involved in its affairs. It really wanted the U.S. to become like a sort of third force to help it balance out some of the pressures that it was feeling from British and Russian imperialism at the time. In fact, the very what always strikes me, the very first disagreement that Iran and the U.S. ever had was in the 1850s when they were negotiating their first peace treaty, their first treaty of friendship and, and commerce and navigation. It took five years for them to negotiate that treaty, longer than it took for them to negotiate JCPOA to, in, 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 you know, up to 2015, right? More, longer than it took to negotiate the nuclear, the nuclear deal. Why did it take so long? What were they arguing about in the 1850s? This is really striking. I mean, there were many sticking points to that first treaty, but one of them was that the, the Iranian government wanted to purchase American warships and fly the stars and stripes from uh, Iranian shipping in the Persian Gulf to send a warning, a sort of message to the British Empire that was very, uh, had a very strong presence in the Persian Gulf. And the U.S. responded by saying, no, wait, there's no way. We're not getting involved in your affairs like this. That's none of our business. That's the first disagreement they ever had. That's how it all began, with Iran wanting the U.S. more involved in its affairs and, and the U.S. saying, no, that's none of our business. We don't want to get involved in your business. It's extraordinary from where we sit today. You structure your book by seasons. There's a wonderful spring of these two cultures discovering each other and not always getting along, but relatively admiring each other, kind of turning over time into 
a winter, the one we're in right now, of U.S.-Iranian relations. What was that summer like? So the summer is really the early part of the 20th century, which you know, is the closest I think we ever come to a sort of golden age of U.S.-Iran relation. I wouldn't call it in some sort of unqualified golden age, but I think that it was, you know, as good as things ever got, which is to say this was a time when, yeah, they've moved past the initial frisson of, of mutual discovery and are now beginning to really explore more meaningful ties, whether it's trade, as, for example, the U.S. rapidly became Iran's fourth and then third largest trading partner by the 1930s, importing American automobiles, sewing machines, machinery, and in the other direction, things like carpets, dates, things like that, to things like archaeology, American archaeologists becoming very deeply involved in digging up Iran's antiquities on a range of kind of soft power issues. These are two countries that are getting much more integrated into each other's business. And what they see of each other, they generally really like. The Iranians see a country that is the rapidly rising power of its day, that's, whose economy is rapidly growing, whose political position in the world is, is progressing. And they see it, but also mo- most importantly, as an anti-imperial power, a country that, that came to power, that came into creation on the back of a revolution against the British Empire that seems to understand or empathize at least somewhat with the struggles of smaller, weaker countries, that doesn't, most importantly, doesn't actually get involved in Iran's business, that doesn't seem to have any designs on manipulating Iranian politics, or even doesn't seem to show much interest, really, uh, in Iran. They find that attractive. They find it appealing. And this is a country they want to learn from, that Iran is rapidly declining as a power by the 19th and early 20th century. And they know that the the West, the European powers are progressing economically, militarily, and politically. And they want to learn from that, but they don't like the unequal relations that they have with countries like Britain or France or Russia. The U.S. seems to take a different approach. It doesn't always live up to its rhetoric, but you know that's what they're finding. And then from the other side, the U.S. finds itself really enamored, the American public really enamored by in this country that's had a constitutional revolution in 1906 and is trying to free itself from the yoke of Russian and British interference. And it's also an ancient civilization that they admire you know, and, and is very much smitten with that. And so it's a sort of a little bit of a love fest, although there are some bumps along the way as well. That didn't last too long, though. The 1953 coup is prominent in the minds of Iranians today in a way that it's not for Americans. How do Americans underestimate the role that plays in Iranians' mindset today? It's easy to kind of talk about the blame game. Obviously, look, the CIA came in, overthrew, helped to overthrow a very popular prime minister. I think there are two ways I would answer that question. One is by looking at what went before. I think it's amazing to me just how strong and warm the feeling of admiration for the United States was among Iranians right up until the end. It strikes me that Mossadegh himself, just three weeks before he was overthrown, was writing a letter to Eisenhower appealing for help against the British, knowing instinctively, feeling that the U.S., that Eisenhower would understand Iran's plight, while, in fact, Eisenhower had given his approval, his go-ahead to the coup. Just the summer before, you know, news reached Tehran that the old Presbyterian schoolmaster, Samuel Jordan from Pennsylvania, who had run the Al Gore school in Tehran for 40 years, that he had died. You know, the city of Tehran came to a standstill to mourn him. Right? This is just a year or two before the 1953 coup. That is how much, how, how strong and positive the reputation of the U.S. was in Iran. Even some of the most nationalist newspapers that supported Mossadegh in his fight against the British when they criticized the U.S., it was with a really striking tone of sadness and surprise and disappointment. The U.S. must be, they must be getting misled by the British. You know, maybe they don't have enough experience with world affairs to understand what they're doing because this, is, this seems very contrary to their values. You know. But when they criticized the British, it was completely different. It was a really vigorous, angry, you know, kind of anti-imperialist kind of tone. 
The other way I would answer the question is, is looking at everything that happened since, you know, which is to say that for the next 25 years, look, it wasn't a constant, never-ending dictatorship. Like Shah's, the Shah gradually drifted towards autocracy over the course of the 1960s and 1970s. And in many cases, American administrations tried to steer him away from that course. So it's not a simple question of just blaming the U.S. for all these things. But I think what's interesting is that by the 1970s, there were three basic nodes of opposition to the Shah's regime. It was the left communists. There were the sort of liberals in the middle. And then there was the sort of, I don't want to call them a right wing, but they were religious traditionalists. And what was striking was that all three kind of groupings were, had run out of patience with the Shah's regime. And all of them for different reasons. The left was becoming more radicalized, more disenchanted with the Soviet Union, more fascinated with guerrilla movements and Maoism. The liberals had been discredited by the 1953 coup. So we'll come back to that in a moment. You know, the religious radicals felt that, you know, it was time to take a more forceful and less obedient approach to the kind of religion and the role of Islam in Iranian society. But what's really striking to me is that all three groups, for different reasons, had reasons to be angry with the U.S. The left, of course, you know, they always will be uh, in the middle of the Cold War for obvious reasons. And religious traditionalists were very suspicious of the large American presence in Iran and the sort of the immorality that they saw, that they believed was, you know, it was bringing with it. But what's really striking is that the people in the middle, the sort of liberal nationalists, they're the people who naturally should have been pro-American. They could have held the middle ground between the communists and the religious radicals. But they couldn't anymore. They had no more credibility because they had tried to do everything. They had played by the rules in 1953. They had created political parties and newspapers and petitions and done everything. And Mossadegh had been this very constitutional pro-Western leader who really believed in Western constitutional concepts. But he had been overthrown by the world's greatest democracy. And that lent very little credibility anymore to that approach. It meant that it was very difficult for that old generation to get out there and in front and say, hey, listen, now let's sign a petition, let's start a newspaper, let's do a political party. The feeling was, listen, Grandpa, your generation, they did all that, and then what do they do to you? You know? And that was the mood in Iran in the 1970s. Thank you for listening to the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, please spread the word and subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. Thanks in advance for your support. Speaking of the 70s, you talk in the book about the ceremony in 1971 that the Shah threw at Persepolis for the 2500th anniversary of the Persian Empire. What did that signify both to the Iranian people and to the United States? Yeah, that's often seen as a kind of turning point in the Shah's uh, sort of megalomania. And, you know, like all these things, we can make too much of it sometimes. But, but that was pretty striking. That was important on a number of levels. One thing was the Shah's, part of the Shah's ideology of playing down the role of Islam in, in Iranian society and instead celebrating the pre-Islamic history of the Persian Empire. You know, he declared 1971 you know, the year of Cyrus the Great. You know, he talked about how we're heading towards the great civilization or kind of rejuvenation of the Persian Empire. He even changed the calendar, changed you know, to the year 1975 from 1354, which is what it was in the Islamic calendar, to the year 2535, which is how many years it had been since the foundation of the Persian Empire. You know, those kinds of things would have been fine in a very different context, in a, in a context where the economy wasn't overheating, where there wasn't massive rampant corruption, where there wasn't great political repression, uh, where people weren't being tortured in large numbers by secret police, where there wasn't a large seething underclass of people who felt they had no opportunities. 
and where there wasn't a religious leader uh, who was openly critical of the Shah in exile, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who, who criticized these kind of lavish ceremonies around Persepolis. The Shah spent God knows how much money on this celebration of 2,500 years of Iranian monarchy, invited all of the heads of state from all around the world. It was a lavish party held in the middle of the desert at Persepolis at the ancient Persian capital, to which no Iranians were really invited. And they had to watch it on television. And, you know, he stood there and tried to channel Cyrus the Great at the tomb of Cyrus, you know, saying, oh, Cyrus, we are awake. You can rest easy because we're awake. That stuff didn't really play well anymore by the early 1970s. And, and in many ways, it was probably the beginning of the end of the show. We've talked for decades about the threat of a nuclear Iran. And just last week, Israel apparently sabotaged an Iranian nuclear facility. What explains the stalemate with Iran over its nuclear program? And how effective has U.S. strategy been? Yeah, the stalemate has, has nothing to do with the nuclear issue. And I feel very strongly about this. And this is why I think this is the number one thing that is most typically missed when people talk about it. This is not about the nuclear issue. In an atmosphere of trust and positivity, this is an easy disagreement to resolve. Iran's nuclear file is not that different from that of dozens of other countries that at various points have experimented with dual-use technology, with, with, with technology that can be used potentially for a weaponization program, but also can be used for civilian uses of, of nuclear energy, whether that's radioisotopes for medical treatment and nuclear energy. The overwhelming evidence actually shows us that Iran has had no real interest in pursuing nuclear weapons. But the problem is no one trusts them. And there are some reasons for that. There's some perfectly good reasons for that. But this issue would disappear tomorrow if there were friendly relations between the United States and Iran. The U.S. has enjoys relations with a lot of countries that have similar nuclear files. And conversely, as long as there is no trust or kind of goodwill between Iran and the U.S., the nuclear issue simply cannot be resolved. It, this, it inherently is the kind of issue that can always remain ambiguous and open to dubious claims. In the famous formulation of Donald Rumsfeld, what about the unknown unknowns? The thing about nuclear industries, you can always say, what about, what do we really know? You know, how do we know they're not hiding something somewhere? You know, the case is really clear to me. 16 U.S. intelligence agencies, national intelligence estimate again and again says, look, they, they are not interested. They suspended their program, their weapon, any hints of a weaponization program in 2003. But there are some really good, clear reasons why Iran uh, is pursuing this. They're also, in many ways, increasing their centrifuges out of leverage. And this is the thing. This has become such a self-perpetuating disagreement that I think in many cases, it has actually encouraged Iran to begin increasing its enrichment, not because it really needs 60% or 20% enrichment or because it needs 15,000 centrifuges. It doesn't. And that's why, of course, when people look at that and they think, what are they actually doing? What are they really doing? Well, in many cases, they're actually building up leverage for negotiations. Because if you don't actually need this stuff, it's the easiest thing to do in a negotiation is just to keep building it up so that when you do have to make concessions, they're not really concessions. And also, so you get taken more seriously at the negotiating table. They've discovered, for better or for worse, that this was the one thing that gets the attention of the United States and the world powers. It's, it's Iran's nuclear program. I think this is such an easily avoidable conflict. It's a manufactured crisis that I think would just go away in, in a very different kind of atmosphere. To get that kind of atmosphere of trust and mutual cooperation, what are the policies you hope that the Biden administration could pursue over the next few years? Well, I would hope that they would quickly find a way to return to the JCPOA because it really is incumbent on the United States to return to the JCPOA. We walked away from it. That is just simply logical. But I, and I don't think this should also be that difficult. I think the Biden administration has to return quickly to the deal. And then I would hope use it as a starting point for a more constructive dialogue with Iran, although I'm not terribly hopeful. I mean, I am very idealistic when it comes to U.S.-Iran relations. I really am, probably more than most people, but I'm not terribly optimistic. I just, 
I think there are too many entrenched interests, both in the U.S. and in Iran and elsewhere in the region, that simply do not want to see a, a better relationship between the U.S. and Iran. I would hope that, given that we're early in this administration, that a, a quick return to the JCPOA could be the beginning of that. But that's exactly what Barack Obama hoped for in 2009. And frankly, the Israelis ran rings around him and dragged out the whole process until he only had one year left in his second term and wasn't really going to use that time to build on a better relationship with Iran. So we'll see. Maybe under Biden, it will be different. Although I have to say, I'm not very hopeful. Can you say more about how whatever crisis that we talk about when we're talking about Iran, how that is a manufactured crisis, the the kind of missed opportunities over the last 20 or 30 years or the sabotaging of opportunities of the last couple decades? How has that led up to today? Yeah, I think, look, I think it's changed shape. It hasn't been a monolith for 40 years. People often go back to the hostage crisis and the revolution of 1979 as if somehow that happened and then no one's forgiven anything since. No, a lot of other things have happened. And the missed opportunities on both sides have been legion. Uh, Neither country has been innocent of of missing opportunities. I would, broadly speaking, and this is just a huge generalization, I would say that during the 1980s, Iran probably was more, tended to miss more opportunities, was less interested, frankly, in a better relationship with the United States, was more radical, was in its most revolutionary phase. It was intransigent. It was high on its kind of own revolutionary rhetoric. And the Reagan administration made some genuine, you know, ham-fisted and poorly executed, but but, but well-intentioned attempts to improve relations with Iran. But I would say that since the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, I think the U.S. probably missed more opportunities because, ironically, Iran has actually become more pragmatic and less fanatical in many ways in its foreign policy. I say this with full recognition of the fact that it continues to sponsor proxy militias throughout the region. But I think largely those are a kind of defensive posture that it, and I know people will get upset at that, but I don't think, I think the idea for Iran is it's a sort of insurance policy against getting bombed by the United States or by Israel. And I think it's shown itself many times to be willing to reconsider some of those relationships. But what Iran needs is recognition and respect and security guarantees of the kind that only the United States can give. We forget that that, Iran is surrounded by a hundred or was until recently hundreds of thousands of American troops and bases and and has no friends, has no real ally at the state level, with the possible exception of the Syrian government, which is not a particularly useful ally at the moment. You know, has a few proxy militias, and that's it. It is a highly isolated country. Its economy is completely strangulated. Many, you, you can blame Iran for its own problems. That's fine. The reality is, as long as that's the case, it's not going to feel comfortable abandoning any of the activities that the U.S. sees as being problematic because it needs to find ways to, to level the playing field. The best way to get it to abandon some of those policies that we don't like uh, is to actually give Iran the kind of, to embark on a kind of, on a process that might ultimately lead Iran feeling safe and comfortable uh, being able to you know, know that it's not the subject of regime change operations or you know anything like that. In the course of writing your book, you visited Iran many times and used both Iranian and American archives. Where did you travel when you were in Iran and what did you learn there that you couldn't have learned without going? It was very important to me that I do go to Iran for this book. Typically, books on this subject have been written mostly with U.S. archives or mostly with Iranian archives. And that has to do with issues of access that people in both countries have. It's unfortunate because it replicates uh, some of those narratives that we actually want to get away from. I actually believe that it's important to hear from both countries, but really from all actors in this narrative. That's what I was trying to do, get access to archives that are difficult for for non-Iranians researchers to be able to get access to. But also I was trying to broaden what we think of when we use the word archive. To me, an archive is not just an quote-unquote archive where you go and look at documents. 
I was also trying to look at some of the afterlives of the U.S. presence in Iran, some of the kind of artifacts that it's left behind. So I wanted to go to places, you know, like the American cemetery, the American Presbyterian Cemetery from 1855 that's up on a hilltop in the middle of northwest Iran at the end of a boulder-strewn track with no paved road, you know, completely grown over with vegetation, where, you know, 50 or so American Presbyterian missionaries have been buried for 150, 170 years. These are part of the fabric of uh, U.S.-Iran relations as well. You know, I wanted to you know, visit, visit some of the schools that, that, that American missionaries had established, look at the old American embassy and any other kind of lingering signs of, of this U.S. presence. They're, they're still there if we look for them, if we know how to look for them. You can still see the old U.S. Army barracks, the old dormitories near the University of Tehran. You know, they're now dormitories for the university, but those were built in the 1940s by the American military. One sentence you wrote in the book really stood out to me in particular, and it's that history can be a force for peace. What possibilities do you see for peace in the region? Nothing anytime soon. But I do believe that actually better relations between the U.S. and Iran would, I think, have a real ripple effect across the region and across U.S. policy across the region. I think that, as I say in the introduction to the book, I don't think there's a single problem the U.S. is dealing with in the Middle East today that could not benefit from a better relationship with Iran, whether that's in the Arab-Israeli conflict, whether it's in Yemen, whether it's in Syria, uh, in Iraq, uh, Bahrain, even places you don't even expect. There are places where this relationship would lower the tension and lower the temperature on a lot of other issues. It's a sort of unspoken Cold War, which is kind of funny because these are not, I mean, you know, the United States is a just dramatically more powerful country than Iran. There's no reason to be in a Cold War with a country that has a almost negligible conventional military capability, that you know, the economy is strangulated, it's completely isolated. I mean, enough is enough. You know, there's just no reason for it. I mean, there are reasons for it, of course, you know, but, you know, as I explain in the book, but there's no reason why it cannot be unraveled, why things cannot be improved. I think that would benefit the region, but I think it would benefit both countries. You know, obviously, Iran is a country of 80 million people with an incredible potential, uh, economically, culturally, politically, and otherwise, for the U.S. There's, there's a reason why it was once a major pillar of U.S. policy. John Gazvinian's new book is America and Iran, A History, 1720 to the Present, and you can find it wherever you buy your books. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>